0: Please be seated. The passage this morning that we'll be studying comes in John chapter 9, or we'll be studying John chapter 9. While you're turning there, I'll take uh, this moment as an opportunity to say thank you to this church. Uh, over the past several weeks, there have been needs uh, in the church. People have had uh, emergencies in their families and other kinds of needs, and you have stepped up in each and every time. I've heard uh, multiple times about ways people have quietly come alongside, have served, have met needs, whether it's through the uh, giving of of meals or or helping in other practical ways. And we get to see that periodically when we hear the reports, but you don't necessarily. And so I want to just say thank you and commend you for being the body of Christ uh, to one another. This is the way we are called to live together. And uh, while we challenge you, uh, I'm not sure that, well, I'm sure I don't thank you uh, near enough, and so I wanted to take that opportunity to say thank you now. A passage this morning, John chapter 9, we'll be looking at the entirety of the chapter, but it's a, a long chapter, um, and so I'm going to read at first uh, just through verse 12, and then we'll work our way through uh, the rest of the passage. So prepare yourselves as we come to hear the word of God. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our God, we do pray that from this word, you would grant us the ability to see, not only to behold your glory by faith, but also with those same eyes and by your gift, to be able to see ourselves, our hearts, our lives, and this entire world. Bless us with understanding from this text and of this text that we may understand our lives, our circumstance, our purpose, and even understand our relationship with you more clearly. We do pray that you would bless us, for in your blessing you make us whole. You enable us to be used. We find joy in that, and our neighbors and the nations are blessed. So be at work and form us this day through this portion of your word. We pray for the sake of your glory and in the name of Christ. Amen. As we begin, I need to say, I think up front, that I have a a problem with this passage. My problem is not questioning the historical veracity or the biblical authority here. I'm I'm fully convinced of the authority and the historicity of, of the scriptures. My problem is, is really more personal, and my problem is, is this, I don't like it, or at least I'm not naturally inclined to like this passage, because you see, if I take seriously what this passage teaches, I have to believe some things about God that are contrary to the way I would prefer to think of God. Contrary to things that I kind of picked up, I'll call it on the streets, since I didn't really grow up in church or I was in and out or whatever, however you would describe that, uh, of common beliefs about God. Contrary to the way many people believe about God. And because it causes me to think differently than I would prefer to think, I don't like it. This passage, what we see happening here is Jesus is, and his disciples are on their way somewhere. We're not sure how long after the festival of, of uh, the tabernacles has, has been completed. Could be another, just the next day, could be a couple of days. They're still in Jerusalem. John is weaving them together because he is showing us something, both uh, inspired by God and using his literary abilities. And they come across this man sitting someplace uh, begging. A man who was obvious to all was blind, a man that it seems evident that they had had some interaction with before or at least some knowledge about because they were all aware that not only was he blind now, but he had been blind at birth. Their knowledge prompted the disciples to ask a question of Jesus that uh, perhaps it was simple conversation, perhaps it was a deep, genuine longing to understand uh, more about how things work. Uh, But they ask a question that reflects what I consider to be quite understandable thinking. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Did he sin, which would be tough to do because he was born blind? Or did his parents sin? And therefore, as a consequence, this man was born blind. And I consider that question to be a very reasonable question. It seems a very logical question. It falls in line with the way that I would naturally be inclined to want to think about God, especially when we consider that God is just and God is fair. And yet Jesus' response is that neither this man nor his parents sinned but that he was born in this condition. He was experiencing this suffering, this affliction, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Or we might say so that as God was at work in his life, God would receive glory. And that is an incredibly uncomfortable thought, especially when I like to think of God as being just, according to my scale of justice and fair according to my way of thinking of what is fair, and to assume that there is a direct correlation between what we experience and our behaviors and what we deserve. In fact, theologians say that there's there's a word for that kind of thinking. Theologians call that kind of logic a a theodicy, a justification of God's actions. Another theologian, a man named uh, Herman Ritterboss, defines that thinking that I'm inclined to this way. It's the assumed dogma of a direct relationship between sin and sickness and misfortune. And you see that makes sense to me. And yet Jesus says "Well, it may make sense, but that's not the circumstance. That's not the reality. That's not the definitive way that God works. In fact, he says that there was a purpose in this, that God would receive glory. While that may be true, it is not necessarily comforting when I think deeply about it. There's an old story that has gone around in many Presbyterian circles. Some of you may have heard it before. It's about a young boy that was found sulking in his room by his mother. And the mother, who was compassionate, went in and Asked what many mothers would ask is, why are, why are you sulking? Why are you weeping? And the young boy said, because daddy spanked me. And his mother, out of compassion, but also wanting to use this as an opportunity and not knowing the circumstance, um, asked the, the inevitable question, well, why did your father discipline you? And the boy who was well-catechized response to demonstrate his own power and glory, Um <laughs> And yet when I come to this passage, I have to ask myself, is that the way God works? And if so, is is that fair? And if God is glorified in our suffering, how how is God glorified in our suffering? You have to admit that philosophers and theologians have been pondering that question for ages. And yet we need to take seriously what Jesus is saying here so that we would have understanding uh, of how God does work, so that some of us would have understanding of what's going on in our lives, and and some of you very definitely need to hear what Jesus is saying here, because it is this that will bring you comfort and perhaps channel to have some level of understanding of of what God may be doing in you and, and through you. But we do need to understand this is that this passage is is suggesting to us that some of our suffering, as perplexing as it may be, is experienced so that the glory of God might be shown in and through our lives. The scripture teaches that suffering that we experience sometimes comes as a corrective uh, matter. In other words, that God brings something into our lives to get us back on the proper path. That's not what is going on with this man in the text. It does seem to be part of what God is doing through Jesus' ministry in the rest of the story. Sometimes the the, uh, suffering that we experience in this life is constructive. In other words, there's difficulties that we experience, but the purpose is to strengthen us and to build us up. We do see that seeming to be taking place in the life of this man, although that's not the the primary purpose here. But what we also need to understand is that in some cases, as is clear within our text, that the suffering that we are experiencing is simply so that God's work might be on display in us. The late uh, James Montgomery Boyce writing of this passage said this, we must not make the mistake Of assuming that if someone is experiencing some great catastrophe, it is because God has struck them down because of sin. And we need to hear this. And we need to hear not only what voice is saying, but filter what he is saying through what Jesus is saying about this man's circumstance. And we need to hear that very clearly and then tune out all of the false teachers who are out there who may live not too far away and run a TV network and have a TV show who tell you that hurricanes are coming as God's judgment as if that is a definitive word coming from God. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. He and nobody else has a direct pipeline to understand. We need to understand the framework with which God is working. And so we do not necessarily not assume that just because somebody's experiencing difficulty, whether it's a physical issue or circumstantial issue or a natural disaster, that God is necessarily bringing that on because it is a consequence of our behavior. And I want you to think about it for a moment. What would that say about God if that is the case? That, let's just say that the recent hurricanes are a divine judgment on, on Houston or Jacksonville or other areas where uh, they have been impacted in, and in Puerto Rico. Because it seems to me that if that's the case, it would suggest that God is just this, this uh, sadistic cosmic judge that's just waiting for people to get out of line so that he can smack them down and demonstrate his power and his glory. And perhaps if we go even a step further, we have other questions too, because every one of us can probably think of occasion where we have sinned, stepped out of line, done things that warrant certain kinds of consequences, and we didn't experience anything either immediate or particularly strong. And if that's the case, we need to be asking ourselves, then was God asleep, or is God inconsistent? See, the whole idea that there is a, always a direct consequence uh, of uh, the, the suffering we experience experience is directly linked to our behavior. It leads us to think things of God that are not consistent with who God is and how he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. Listen to what Boyce says again as he continues on that thought that he had written. Don't imagine that this is God's way, because if you do, you will immediately make yourself into a nasty little judge trying to find out what other Christian, another Christian has done instead of recognizing that in God's providence, all things come to all people. And in many cases, God sends suffering simply that he might be glorified. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. And so some of you need to hear this in the suffering that you are experiencing, whether it is a physical or an emotional, or a circumstantial, or whatever the suffering may be, it is not an indication that God is mad at you. Suffering comes to us all. We need to ask ourselves, is this something that's corrective, and, and how is this constructive, but we need to not assume that we are alienated from God, that God is trying to teach us some lesson that we can't figure out because he's angry, or because he is somehow forsaking you. We're told that our sufferings do have a purpose. And ultimately that purpose is that even in the midst of our suffering we would glorify God. Now that was a big question for a number of people because only that which was pure and perfect was able to come into God's presence and those who were broken and experiencing suffering would assume they were alienated from God. This is a very freeing statement is even in the midst of your suffering God is still with you, God still loves you and God is using you in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have chosen. I I certainly wouldn't, nobody wants to suffer. And yet we see that God uses circumstances in the lives of the people who are called according to his purpose to bring glory to his name. In one sense that's a very encouraging thing that even when we feel unworthy and assume that we're being punished that we can still glorify God, that we can still have fellowship with him. But it doesn't alleviate the other question which is who signed up for this? I mean why, who, when did I do this? And, and does God really get glory through the suffering of his people and i think one of the things that we need to recognize is there a distinction between god receiving glory and god experiencing joy in your suffering and we see that this is biblically this is not only an incidental thing we ask the question would god really strip a man of everything that he has in order to see whether he will remain faithful and glorify him? And the answer is yes, Job is a clear example of that. And in Job's life, we see that Job who had not done anything to warrant the suffering he experienced continued to cling to God, and to worship God, and to honor God, not because of what God could give him, but because he recognized that God is worthy of everything, and that God is his only hope. And in that faith, he also had the assurance that God was his Redeemer, who he would have fellowship with. See, one of the things suffering does is it enables us to rec- ask ourselves this. Who, who do we live for, and, and who, what is our purpose in life? And our natural instinct, I think, is to assume that God's job is to provide the comforts and goodies that we desire in this life. We wouldn't put it that crass, but many of us, certainly true for me, that's my instinct. I start screaming when I become uncomfortable, whether it's emotional or, or threatened in any way. God, why are you doing this? Stop it. I only like the good things. But the scriptures tell us that our primary purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him and glorify God by enjoying Him and what we see here is that uh, through this man, suffering, God brings glory. Job is an example of even in the midst of his suffering, there is glory that is brought to God because he is clinging to God and therefore he is finding his hope. And it's not just an incidental thing. We see what he has done in the past, he, he does through the ages. I just finished reading uh, a biography uh, of Eric Little called For the Glory. Many of you recognize the name Eric Little. He was the um, Scottish Olympian the, uh, that won a gold medal in the uh, 1924 olympics Uh, he became famous again in the early 1980s when the movie um, chariots of fire came out and chronicled somewhat uh, his his experience because he being a devout believer and a strict sabbatarian would do nothing other than worship and rest on the lord's day and when he got to the olympics he found out that his heat in the hundred meters was scheduled to take place on the lord's day he refused to compete he experienced significant pressure from the authorities, uh, from his country, the, 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 uh, the track and field and the Olympic Committee. But he wouldn't relent. And then somebody else gave him the opportunity to um, run in a different event. And then he took the gold medal in the 400 meters. But his faithfulness, even against a lot of pressure, was inspirational for many people. What is not as well-known is that Eric Little grew up as a missionary kid in China and had committed his life to go back to China, which he did after the Olympics. And he gave his life in ministry that was tremendously fruitful while he was serving in China for almost 20 years. He was there serving the, the people in Chinese villages and through education, teaching, evangelism, encouragement, and... Uh, and though everybody that worked with him just said that the character that this man demonstrated was it just oozed Christ likeness and then at the outbreak of World War II, when China was occupied by the Japanese Eric Little and other missionaries were taken into prison camps and for the last few years of his life Eric Little lived in a prison camp under horrendous conditions but he continued to serve the people around him. He was the encourager, he was the one who built them up, he was the problem solver. And even in that circumstance of being starved and other, uh, other uh, uh, maladies that, that happened because of their conditions, he remained faithful and joy oozed from him to encourage other people until he actually died because of those circumstances, imprisoned as a prisoner of war only days before the war ended. And yet, God was glorified through his life, not because he endowed him with tremendous athletic ability. That may be why we know of him. But everybody who ministered with him, everybody who served with him, everybody who was ministered to by him, what they saw was Christ likeness in him, a willingness to suffer, to give his life for others. They saw Christ through him and him being faithful to Jesus. And as a result of that, They were able to see Jesus. God was glorified through his faithfulness, even in the midst of his suffering. And there's countless stories of that throughout history. John Bunyan, the faithful Puritan, put in jail because he wouldn't compromise on the gospel. And so he used his time in jail to, you know, scratch out some stories, one of which you might have heard called Pilgrim's Progress. Um, But he was suffering for faithfulness. Uh, Polycarp, one of the early church fathers, uh, was told that he needed to recant of his faith or he would be executed. They put him up and tied him to a stake. They were told him we're gonna light a fire and burn you alive unless you would recant. And his last words were, all of my life Jesus has been faithful to me. So shall I now at this point in my life become faithless to him? And in his death, it is said that there was an aroma of myrrh, a sweet fragrance that went out that was on all of the people who were there in his life, in his faithfulness. God was glorified, and so we need to recognize that God is at work, and we as Christians choose. If we follow Christ, our life is to be lived to the glory of God. That's the path of following Jesus, and each time we are experiencing suffering, we have the opportunity to say, am I really called to this purpose? Is this what I want to do? Do I want God to be glorified in my life, or am I using God? And yet we see time and again that God was in his faithfulness. Answers the prayers of his people who pray, God, use me to bring you glory. Sometimes through success and sometimes through suffering. It continues to be a mystery, but we need to understand. This is what Jesus is teaching us. And that you who are suffering are not suffering needlessly. But there is great opportunity in the midst of your suffering as you remain faithful that you would bring glory to God and become a tremendous witness to God. That becomes a story of this man. And, and in one sense, this is a happy ending, unlike some of the other ones. We see this man going and, and talking with his neighbors uh, and, and continually testifying to the fact that um, Jesus had made, he was once blind and now he's able to see. He, he testified to his friends and his neighbors. He testified uh, to this, um, to the religious leaders. And at the end, when Jesus asked, do you believe in a son of man? He, he says, look, who is he? And he says, I am he. And he said, well, and then we're told he believed and he worshiped because he recognized the power of God in his life to set him free from his blindness to enable him to have sight. We need to see from this passage that we see our suffering differently when we see it by the light of the world. Jesus declares himself to be that light of the world. We also need to see this, is that in this passage that so vividly teaches us about our physical suffering and Jesus healing the man who was born blind, that John uses this account somewhat as a a metaphor to help us all understand how we are born blind apart from Jesus but that in Jesus, he enables us to see. I remember hearing of the story of Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson, who went camping on a camping trip one evening. And after a good meal, and they laid down t- uh, for the night, and they went to sleep. A few hours later, Holmes woke up, and as he nudged his faithful friend, he asked him, a question or encouraged him. He said, Watson, look up. Tell me what you see. Watson looked up and he said, I, I see millions and millions of stars. And then he said, Holmes asked him, what does that tell you? Watson pondered for a moment and then he responded this way. Well, Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Orologically, I deduce that it, the time is uh, approximately a quarter past three. Um, meteorologically, I suspect, uh, well, theologically, um, I, can, I, I can see that God is all powerful and that we are small. And insignificant, and meteorologically, I I suspect that we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. And then Watson says, ask Holmes, what does it tell you? To which Holmes responds, Watson, you you dimwit, it tells me somebody stole our tent. (laughs) See, we are able to see, but we don't always see and that is the natural condition. We see and then we make sense of what we see, but we are unable to make true sense of things because we are not always aware. We are not aware of all of the facts. We are able to talk about our experiences, but we don't necessarily know, and we don't know by our nature, by our birth, into the spiritual realm. And, through this, we see a number of people that serve as examples of our, of our blindness. And so I'm going to work our way through just to show some illustrations and then and, and summarize it with, I think, what one of the things that Jesus wants us to see. But we see the Pharisees and others, they, in their blindness, it, it, they interrogate people. So we, we begin seeing in verse 13, they brought, uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind, and now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened the eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received a sight. And when he told them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I was see. Some of the Pharisees uh, said, this man is not from God. He, has, he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And so there was some division, but they were peeved that he was healing on the Sabbath. They weren't excited for this guy at all, but they wanted his account of things. Now, one of the things that he testifies to, and Jesus as well, is said that Jesus spit into the ground, made mud, and put it on the eye. One of the things we need to see is that's not prescriptive. It's a demonstration that God does whatever God wants to do, even with the most basic things in in this world, spit and mud, and then he brings healing. I'm not sure that you should go to an ophthalmologist who uses that as a technique um, if you are suffering with any uh, issues. But they, they were interrogating because... They were sure of themselves, and they were unwilling to see what God was doing. And then when that didn't work, they go to his parents. And we see that beginning in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been, that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And then they asked, is this your son who you say was born blind? How, does, how then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. Talk about passing the buck here. Um, And he'll speak for himself. And then we're told the reason for their answer. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. Not side so side Still, the Pharisees go and interrogate the guy a second time, picking up in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. In other words, we'll tell you how this works. Just tell us what we want to hear and then, you know, So there's an irony there. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, and the man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind and now I see. That's not an answer that they wanted, so they pressed him all the more. And so they said to him, What did he do to you? And how did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've already told you this. I love this man's sarcasm. I'm just, I admire it. Um, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want me to tell you again? Do you want to become his disciples? I just, I love that. So, uh, uh, this guy, I, I'm looking forward to meeting him one day um, in this, just because there's much I can learn from him. Um, and, uh, and so, they pressed on there over and over again, and we we see the these people who, for the sake of religion, for the sake of giving answers, are denying what God has doing and what God has said. And yet they seem so plausible. it makes so much sense. And one of the things we need to understand is that it's not unbelievers only who can suffer from spiritual blindness. John, as he wrote the the Revelation, records Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. And Jesus says this, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And he's speaking to the church there. And one of the things I think is evident here and that Jesus is showing us and John is recording for us is there are certain things that lead us to be spiritually blind, or at least spiritual glaucoma. And I won't go into great detail, but I want to point them out here for us to consider, because it's not just those who are unbelievers, but those of us who are seeking God and wanting to walk with God need to continually examine, have our eyes examined, so that we are able to see God and glorify him through our lives. We see, I think, at the very beginning, those who are blinded by tradition. And I think that's where the, where the disciples demonstrate that. See, the reason they asked the question, who sinned, is because that was the common belief of the day. And because they were stuck by the common belief of the day and not necessarily all of the revelation of God, they were blinded to a sense until Jesus opened their eyes by giving them the truth. And so we need to ask ourselves this. Are we those people who are shaped somewhat or even too much? by common thoughts of the day that make it difficult for us to hear or to understand what God is doing and what God is seeing? Are we so focused on tradition that we're blinded to what God has revealed in the scriptures? I think the second thing we see is those that are blinded by skepticism. and We see that in verses 8 through 12 with the people that had known this man and were encountering him. Some said, this is amazing. And other people said, well, this can't be. Because, well, it can't be naturally, but it is. And so in their skepticism, we're told some believed and others did not. And so we have to ask ourselves this, do we have difficulty in believing God's promises? Do you have difficulty believing in your own new status as one who is child and beloved of God? And every other promise that God gives to you because ah, it seems too good to be true. I think the third thing we see is this, is we can be blinded by fear. And the parents' example of that. Again, we're told their motive was, you know, their son, who was born blind, who they had no doubt suffered over, worried about, is now healed. And they're more afraid of what people think of them. And this is a very pertinent one. Do you ever worry? Are you prone to worry about what people will think of you if you actually follow Jesus where he would lead you? In those circumstances, our fear can blind us to what God is doing and to his promises. And I think finally and most vividly, we see blinded by self-righteousness, which is evident in the Pharisees. They knew all the answers, and unless everything fit into their matrix, they weren't going to believe it. We need to ask ourselves whether or not we have been awed recently by what God has shown us in his word or whether we read the word and we listen to sermons and messages simply to validate all of our predisposed ideas. See, all of these are causes of spiritual blindness, and Jesus has come to set them free. We need to see from this passage that he who has the power and the authority to heal those physically blind is also concerned, and maybe in some sense more concerned, about healing those who are spiritually blind. Because spiritual blindness leads to death. And by demonstrating that he has this authority in the physical abilities, using it as a metaphor, he is speaking to us and saying, if we are skeptical, if we are doubt, if we are hard-hearted, if we are hungry, he gave us the hunger and he will set us free and enable us to see. Reality is we all walk in blindness. We all walk in darkness until we meet Jesus who is the light of the world. But because Jesus is the light of the world, we who know him are now able to truly see into our lives, into spiritual matters, and to see the world by his light. Father, we pray that you would enable us to see all things as you would have us to see, to offer our lives to the sake of your glory, we would be comforted by your presence and the promise that even in our suffering you do not flee from us lord take our lives and let them belong to you enable us to see that we may give praise to you and may others see you in us we pray to the glory of your name in christ amen i invite you to rise so we sing our song of dismissal